Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Evan Van Ness. I'm here with Dan Romero from Coinbase. Before we get started, I always give the disclaimer that, that I work for Consensus. So if you like this podcast, then you can think of it as being supported by Consensus. And if you don't like it, then you can blame me. So Dan, you work for Coinbase where you're responsible for Coinbase.com and the mobile apps. So you know that whenever there's a price spike, you're about to get swamped. Is there like a little pit in your stomach every time there starts to be a big price increase of here we go again? So I, I don't think it's a pit in my stomach. It's more I get on higher alert. I'm very much focused on what what the team is focused on, which is making sure that the site stays up so customers can get access to the platform. But I, I'm actually not doing anything, right? I, I, I can't make the site go back up. I'm not technical enough to do that. So I, I think for me, it's more moral support. And if we do run into any issues, particularly if they have a, a comms or PR impact, it's trying to manage that component. But we've spent a lot of time over the last year investing in site reliability. We were able to handle a lot more traffic in December than we were, say, last May. We still had some downtime, and I think we've we've spent a lot of time in the first quarter this year investing in the reliability of the platform. We, we didn't have any major downtime. My sense is when we hit the next boom cycle and, and real volume spikes, I, I think we're going to be able to handle it. Don't don't hold me to that because right. we always hit new highs, but, but I, I'm, I've been really, really impressed with the dedication of the team working on this stuff when no one's paying attention now and hopefully it'll pay off later do do you try to forecast it internally like what you think it's going to do if the price goes back up yeah i think the way we think about it is where are the bottlenecks in the system today so if you were to put extreme load on the website and the apps what breaks down so whether it is at the database is it some component of the the code base and then invest efforts in, in refactoring and and building kind of more scalable systems around that. You have to think about it as Coinbase, Brian started it by himself working on nights and weekends while he was at Airbnb. And you start with a kind of a monolithic architecture and very focused on just getting to product market fit. So you make trade-offs where you're, you're kind of optimizing for speed and getting the product out rather than building for scale. Sure. Because if the, if the startup doesn't work out, no one cares that you had the most scalable system. Right versus the opposite. And you have a bunch of examples of this. I think Twitter probably had captured as much attention for being down. I mean, they had the fail whale, right? As, as Coinbase, but ours is a little different given we're a financial service. So I think we have a, you can't see a tweet for a minute. That's probably fine. If you feel like you can't get access to a financial platform if the price is moving around, I think that's a lot more serious. And, and so something that we've especially in the last year, year and a half, have doubled down on in terms of dedicating people to it. And even though we're not having any site uptime issues right now, we have a dedicated team of folks who are just thinking about scaling for the next boom. 
So they're just constantly going out and trying to stress test things, and then whatever seems like the bottleneck is what they focus on next. Pretty much. And yeah. I think that there's there's both the stress test component and then just looking at the code base and saying what needs to be re-architected and re-architected for 10 or 100x scale. The perk of being in Silicon Valley is you have a lot of senior engineers here that have kind of gone through that. And so whether they're actually working here at Coinbase or, or leveraging them in a more consulting capacity, you can get that knowledge transfer when you need it. And I think that's that's something that we've been investing a lot in. So how much did you sleep in the last few months compared to the last four months of 2017 where demand was just out of control? So uh, maybe I'm weird. I try to sleep eight hours every night. And I think it comes at the expense of, if, if you believe you can kind of sleep, work, and then have a personal life. I think it came at the expense of the personal life, and you can ask my wife. There were definitely some nights, especially in December, where there wasn't a ton of sleep, but I think generally not sleeping eight hours leads to suboptimal decision-making and, and thinking. So it, it, I feel like in some ways I, I slept less when I was working in management consulting because it's a client service business and, and you're kind of on someone else's deadline, whereas here the work never ends. And if you're not sleeping and taking care of yourself, you're, I think, going to ultimately end up in a bad situation. You're, you're going to totally burn out. Well, and now you're in more of a management role where you have decisions to make that don't have obvious answers. So you have to be sharp rather than getting stuff done, right? So I guess that's a good good segue into like talking about your role at Coinbase. How is your, I mean, how has your role evolved at Coinbase? Where did you start and... How have you changed along the way what you've done? Yeah, so I joined four years ago, April 2014, on the business development team. How big was Coinbase employee-wise at the time? 15 or 20 people. Wow. We, we all sat in three rows of desks on kind of an open floor plan. So you could stand up at any point and see everyone who worked at the company. When I started, I, I was on the business development team, and we were Bitcoin only at the time. We were really focused on signing up merchants. So I think the first week I was there, I was looking at doing a merchant partnership with Budweiser for a summer concert series where you could accept Bitcoin to buy beer. <laughs> there, were, there were definitely some interesting promotions we were, we were trying to run. That year, we, we signed 10 $1 billion merchants, which wow. at the time was a pretty good milestone. It started with Overstock. Then we had Expedia and Dell. And so that, that, that was exciting. Didn't play out as a use case. But I actually shifted over pretty quickly to launching us in Europe. So in 2014, we had a couple of clones pop up in Europe that were pitching themselves as the Coinbase for Europe. That, I think, got our competitive juices fired up a bit. And I spent the summer looking for a bank in Europe. I, I went to a bunch of different countries, met with, met with dozens of banks, and ultimately found a bank in Estonia. And we've continued to work with that bank since. They've been a fantastic partner of ours. But it was really an on-the-job education for me about bridging the cryptocurrency world with the traditional financial world. From there, I became the bank guy at Coinbase, where I managed our bank relationships, first, first internationally and, and then in the U.S. And so shifted more from pure business development to operations and managing those bank relationships. You were a consultant. Did you have any any experience with the payment stack 
no, I didn't know you could charge back a credit card when I started at Coinbase. So <laughs> that was that was a a boot camp in of itself. Yeah, um, it's it's amazing. So you know, I worked at Tigleap and I was in charge of risk there. If you've never done this, most people have no idea how complicated you know interchange and and um, your your merchant bank and all of that and chargebacks as well. That how you know crazy and antiquated all that can be. So I, I mean, I hear you talk about establishing it in Europe. And that sounds really hard. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a uh, ignorance and willingness to just be optimistic that I could do it. I got lucky and, and found a great partner. And some, really, it was, it was the bank taking a bet on Coinbase rather than us doing it the other way around. Um, and, and I think it's worked well for both of us. But I, I would have never told you a year before I would have been in Estonia trying to, to sign up a cryptocurrency company's bank deal. How, um, how many banks did you go visit? Any I, idea? 50? Yeah, I'd say probably closer to 25, but uh, wow. I was in UK, Spain, Germany, did a bunch of other calls, you know, with some Scandinavian banks. And the nice thing about Europe is if you can get a bank in the EU, where if you have a bank in Estonia, which is a pretty small country, you can accept Euro payments from any bank in, in, in the EU. Okay, so you you're managing bank relationships, and I guess that takes us into 2015, 2016. Yeah, and and in 2016 I got promoted where I was running a bunch of different operational functions, so recruiting, finance, support, which we can definitely talk about support in 2016 and 2017, the bank relationships, business development, business operations. So I got a general education in in running a lot of functions at a startup that kind of went into hyperdrive in 2017. And I'm really, really happy with the leadership team we've built out and that my focus now is exclusively on, on the consumer apps, coinbase.com and the mobile, mobile apps. And, and I don't have any of those responsibilities now in terms of, you know, we've hired Asif, brought on a couple of other really great execs in you know, Tina is running support. Emily's running corp dev. Rachel's now running comms. And I was kind of looking back, we now have five people doing what I was doing in 2017 by myself. And, and obviously, there were tons of other people at the company who were working on this stuff. But kind of put 2017 in perspective, it, it was really pushing everyone at the company be to the edge of their limits in terms of what they could be doing. And it, and it was just a function of, of the market. We didn't do anything different in the product. It's just all of a sudden, you had a lot of people interested in, in crypto. So I went back and researched, like I read all your tweets, basically from near the beginning of 2017 till now. And I tend to do pretty extensive research before interviews. I was, you can definitely tell when, I, I mean, I could almost just guess what the prices were based on what you were tweeting, right? Because your tweets got much less interesting as 2017 went on, and then you just quit Twitter for for four months somewhere in like August, September, much less frequent as well. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that like you? Y yes and no. I, I actually left Twitter in 20, September as a exercise and just could I do it? I am obsessive about checking Twitter. Maybe less so now having gone through that cold turkey, nothing from September through January 1st. But I, I really, I, I've basically cut all their social media out. I think with social media, I found that I was just kind of checking it in the same way you'd eat junk food if it was just sitting there. Sure. And it was clarifying of like what was important last year, at least from a work standpoint. 
and I, and I found that if, if I wasn't going to be investing as much time personally, because like I said, I was sleeping and working, I shouldn't be spending any time really on Twitter. And, and to be honest, I didn't really miss it. I think I've come back to using it because I, I do think it's, it's a good way to pay attention to what's going on in the ecosystem. But the other thing about working at Coinbase and then reading newsletters like yours is you can get a combination of what, what activity people are chatting about in the company Slack and just at the lunch table as well as as newsletters, which I think are kind of higher signal-to-noise ratio. Yeah, well, hopefully. Thank you. I appreciate that. Good good newsletter plug there. <laughs> I, you, you told me that was required, so I had to do it. I've heard that you own no crypto. I have a minimal amount of crypto relative to Coinbase equity, if you kind of play it out. Gotcha. So I view my bet as I'm building Coinbase, and if Coinbase ends up being successful, that that's my exposure to cryptocurrency. I also just generally don't like conflicts of interest. I think it tends to be a way for people to discredit your ability to kind of make statements because they assume malintent or or you you have aligned and you have some set of incentives. <laughs> so my view is try to remove as much from the trolls as possible. Yeah. Hate me for working at Coinbase, not for the crypto I own. <laughs> well. I mean, that's a funny, a, a funny, funny that you mentioned it because Coinbase is a bit like consensus, or just in general in this space. I feel like I end up explaining consensus to people, and I find that just as being one of the bigger players like Coinbase as well as consensus, just get a lot of irrational hate. And I think it's just from being the big player, so it attracts a certain amount of whatever do you do you feel that like i mean you certainly have to get your fair your fair share of twitter trolls right i've been at the company for four years and if you've spent enough time on our bitcoin you develop thick skin or you you don't make it a place like coinbase right (laughs) and and that's not to say that people on our bitcoin are inherently bad i actually think that they're a great check on anybody who has too big of an ego because they're quick to find any flaw in anything. But I think just generally, if, if you kind of are born on on the Reddit subreddits of crypto, you're, you're going to be able to deal with a little bit of internet hate. Yeah, and there's a lot of internet hate. I'm, I saw like people automatically blamed you for the card processing issue a few months ago and then didn't believe you when you told them multiple times it wasn't our fault. Which, as somebody that's dealt with the payment stack, I totally, right away, I was like, oh, that's got to be the truth. Like, none of this stuff works. <laughs> Not as it should. And that had to have, you had to feel like that was frustrating to some degree. It was incredibly frustrating. But at the same time, I, I also want to hold ourselves to a standard. If we had been doing an amazing job with everything, and there weren't as many issues in 2017 around kind of just customer experience, then I think people would have given us the benefit of the doubt. Part of our execution last year, it, it was good. It wasn't great. The beauty of free markets is people expect great. And if not, they're going to they're gonna not believe you and they're going to potentially look for other brands or, or new new alternatives. And so I think it's a really healthy thing for us is to have to build a product and service that customers love so much that when something like that happens, they immediately are blaming the other party, right? And and look, I think we we worked pretty hard to make sure that there was a, a, a public statement from some of the other parties involved there. And 
I will say that they generally don't do that kind of a joint statement. Right. Yeah, so that's really I, I hard <laughs> to get we, done. <laughs> we we definitely had some emotional phone calls, but we finally got that out. And I think at least for customers who at, at this point are willing to give us a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, they, they could see that we, we do care. I mean, I'm still trying to clean up some of the, the after effects of that. There are still some customers, I think, who who have been incorrectly charged and haven't had that fixed. And we're going to continue to pursue it until every single one of them is made whole. That's an incredibly humble response because, I mean, the exchange business is difficult. Like when you have these price spikes, literally every exchange goes down and people complain about one exchange. And I always tell them like, well, then just switch because it's going to happen to you at the same, at the, at the different one in the same exact way because this is a boom and bust uh, business. Anyway, I guess, so I'm curious about your transition to management. How did you find the transition from doing things to making making decisions? Did did it come naturally to you? Was there like any books, things that you relied on to help you make that transition? Two-part answer. So the first part, I think I struggled a little bit with it, to be honest. I, I tend to think of myself as someone who can get up learning curves pretty quickly. But what I found was Thinking you're good at management and actually being good at management are two very different things. The the challenge is when you're doing individual contributor work, at least in the type of work that I was doing, whether that's meeting with an external party or putting a slide deck together, an Excel model, it's pretty objective in terms of the outcome. Did you get the deal done or is the analysis, quote, good? With management, it's a combination of do people actually like working for you? And are you effective in getting those people to execute on all the things that need to happen? And you can't do the work for them. And I think my initial bias, at least when I really felt the first six months I was in a more management role, was to dive in and, and do it at least alongside people. And that didn't scale well. And it did not set us up for as strong of a 2017 as we could have had. If I think about what good managers or, or executives really, and I'm, I'm kind of learning this now since we've had a bunch of people join the leadership team, first and foremost, they can hire people really quickly because they've worked with other people in the past and they know the right roles to fill out in order to kind of scale the overall function. And I think that my bias wasn't to supplement the the existing team that I had rather it would be okay how can we get everyone to do a little bit more because I, I think it was approaching it from more of an IC perspective so I think that there were some hard lessons last year in terms of if I think back on it the way to have solved some of the problems would have been actually just to to delegate more and then in in cases where things just weren't scaling is, is hire more people and so in retrospect, that that was a lesson. And I'm seeing it now with, with some of the leadership folks who've come in at Coinbase. I think from a book standpoint, I'd read The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz's book, and High Output Management from Andy Grove prior to really being a manager. Uh -huh. And I remember thinking through them as kind of interesting, but didn't seem particularly applicable. I reread both of those books last year. It's amazing when you have that frame of reference in terms of some of the examples they give. Right. And you realize as cliched as some of the stories and pieces of advice they give come across, they actually are true. 
my philosophy on management books is they're written for a very small audience of people, but they, you can learn a lot from them regardless of where you kind of are in your career. But for at least for me, they were much more impactful reading it kind of retrospectively than they were proactively. Have you been able to f keep the culture the same as you've grown? I mean, it, of course, it's going to evolve to some degree, but do you feel like you've been able to keep the culture the same and has it evolved over time? How have you seen it evolve? I think the answer is yes, but it's definitely changed. The, the core components of our culture, and we have company values, but the way I would phrase them would be, we, we have an intellectually curious culture. If you're joining a cryptocurrency company in 2014, 2015, even now, there's some level of intellectual curiosity. That plus a general level of optimism. Cynical people don't do well at Coinbase. Brian is a very mission-driven person and, and his belief for creating an open financial system with Coinbase, it's very genuine. In order for you to have a true mission-driven company, you have to have optimistic people because otherwise new ideas that are kind of furthering that mission are going to get shot down pretty quickly. It's really easy to come up with all the reasons why something shouldn't happen or can't happen. Pragmatic, optimistic people, that's a, that's a rare thing. And I think we've done a pretty good job of building a culture around that. People are more optimistic and more pragmatic than others, but I think the right mix has been a key to our success. But I, I think that the biggest change that's happened, and this is especially the last six to nine months, is as we brought on more experienced people in the different functions, we've started to professionalize our culture a bit. There's a, a tension there between the fringeness of early crypto enthusiasts <laughs> and the professionalization of, of what is becoming a bigger business at, at Coinbase. And I think I don't think that they're mutually exclusive in, in terms of innovation and, and professionalism, but it's something you have to be careful about because at a certain point you become a big company and then there are startups that are trying to do what you did to the other big companies before you. But my sense is if you can kind of focus on being mission driven, it's going to get you pretty far. And who knows? I, this is my first real kind of hyper growth company. So I'm not talking to you from 30 years of experience. But, but my sense is, I think we're pretty conscious about the culture change and we're trying to make sure that it is a change for better than for worse. Let's go back to, you talked about the early fringiness of the space and that's certainly true. How did you get into the fringe of, of Bitcoin? In 2013, I moved out to Silicon Valley. I'd been in Boston before. I quit my job in consulting and wanted to work in tech. I remember meeting up with Fred Ersom, who I had known from college. And he told me what he had been working on with Coinbase and they had just raised a series A and they were looking for a first support hire. And I distinctly remember in my mind dismissing it categorically as a Ponzi scheme. And why would anyone ever want to do anything with cryptocurrency? <laughs> um, they ended up hiring Olaf, who obviously now um, is a pretty big deal in the crypto world. But a year later, I, I had become enamored with Bitcoin, and this was only after reading the white paper. So a good example of don't judge a book by its cover, read the eight-page white paper before making a judgment. And I think if I had in early 2013, I, I would have immediately wanted to be working in cryptocurrency and probably at Coinbase. 
But I read the white paper December 2013. So the price had kind of gotten to the $1,000 threshold and there was that first kind of real mainstream Bitcoin mania. Yeah. I read the white paper and I remember every day for a month after that, the first thing I woke up and thought about was Bitcoin and how this world of decentralized open finance could shift so many things. And I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And at a certain point, I pinged Fred on, on email and said, hey, I, I really want to work at Coinbase. And so I came in and interviewed and I don't know, they, they decided to take a risk on me because I didn't really have any formal business development experience. I, I had a lot of energy is probably all, all that I had. So you were working at a startup out in the valley that you had just found from Connections? Yeah, I was working at a company, Envoy, which if you ever visit companies in Silicon Valley and you sign in on an iPad, it's probably Envoy. Okay. I actually sold it to Coinbase while I was there. <laughs> and it's a terrific company. But I, I think once you go down the crypto rabbit hole, it's very hard to find anything else interesting. And I've continually seen this this trend in meeting folks. And whenever they, they kind of hit that threshold, it's amazing for them to kind of casually be interested to all they want to do is talk about crypto. And I, that definitely accelerated last year. And you just read the white paper because the media was talking about it? Yeah. And Coinbase had actually just raised a series B from Andreessen Horowitz. So in the same year, 2013, March, they raised a series A from Union Square Ventures, Fred Wilson. November, December timeframe, they raised a series B from Chris Dixon. The company had seven or eight people, which kind of weird if you think about it to have two major fundraises in less than a year and when you raise your a you're two people and when you raise your b you're seven so that that was definitely a kind of a alarm bell in my head to say something interesting is going on here and you're ignorant to it and that's where i said well i might as well start with the white paper and so you you just quit your job as a as a consultant Tell me about that, because that's. It sounds like you didn't have a job lined up, at, like at Envoy when you were going out there. How how was your interview process? I mean, how how was the process of that? How did you decide to quit your job? I didn't want to be a consultant. I, I was an English major in college. Does it, does anybody? <laughs> I used to be a consultant. <laughs> I, I I think it was a means to an end. I was a, an English major that by going into consulting, I became a quote business person. Now looking back on it, you you definitely learn some skills in consulting, but I don't think you are a business person quite yet. I decided that route. I moved out here and you get a bonus for having been there for three years if the business is doing well. And that kind of was my runway. And when I when I took the job at Envoy, actually they didn't have they hadn't raised any money. So I remember telling friends and family, yeah, I'm working at this this iPad you know, sign in startup and they're not paying me any salary, but they're paying me equity and, you know, it all work out. And I think some people a year before I was kind of working at a, a prestigious consulting firm and could maybe think about going to business school. So I think they thought I had kind of totally gone off into, you know, crazy Silicon Valley, kind of like the TV show land. And um, I don't know, I, I just was really excited to be out here and, and working with what I thought were just great product people, right? Um, Larry and Vitor, the two founders at Envoy, they obsessed over 
this product. And, and it, it just felt really great to be part of something like that. Similarly with Coinbase, you're, you're combining obsessive product with arguably the most interesting intellectual category in tech. Um, because it's crossing so many areas, right? Economics and, and politics, governance, um, obviously cryptography and, and now distributed systems. So I, I think all of that is I wake up every day and going to our Bitcoin is, is work, not my distraction from work. So that I think is a pretty cool environment to be in. And so you, I mean, the, the standard track for us, you know, you go be a consultant for two or three years, then you go to business school. You did not do. Did you consider it? Why? I mean, you, there was just an, an allure to tech that brought you out there. I definitely considered it. And I was at Bain and there's a program at Bain where if you get into business school, they'll pay for it. Right. But you sign up for two more years after business school. That, I think, is a pretty appealing thing where you can go to business school and, and not have any debt. R- really, really amazing if you want to take advantage of that. I, I think for me, I didn't have a thing that I wanted to get out of business school and I wasn't particularly interested in the party aspect of it. Um, and that's not to say that folks who go to business school, you know, they're wasting their time. I, I think it's a really personal decision. There's a bunch of different reasons to go. I think just for me, it didn't necessarily line up. So I, I think I, I felt very fortunate as I was able to get a, a job at a, a good consulting firm, learn a bunch of skills and then move out to Silicon Valley and uh, see if I could kind of make it work out here. So I guess let's switch gears. Uh, so you said you sold Envoy to Coinbase. I wrote back down a question uh, while I was doing my research for this podcast that you tweeted anecdote about Metcalf and how the reason he had a big fancy house wasn't that he had invented Ethernet, but that he'd had to go sell Ethernet. So I I'm I'm fascinated by that because entrepreneurship at its core is balancing sales and operations and everybody especially in business school like forgets about the sales part. How do you think about when you when you see these people pitching token projects or anything but they they neglect the sales part? Yeah, my my sense is with consumer products you don't need sales people, right? Fundamentally the product itself should kind of whether that's through virality or, or social, it should be able to kind of build on itself. But there's obviously a product marketing component that functionally is sales, where you, you kind of build an allure and, and, a, and a set of features that people actually want to use. Business software, B2B, SaaS, that all requires sales. And Peter Thiel actually has a pretty good uh, breakdown of this in, in zero to one. So I won't rehash that. I'd just, just go read that if, if you want kind of my opinion on, on why sales is important. I, I think as it relates to tokens, though, my biggest thing is the thing that sells the best is, is working code, right? <laughs> and I think people wonder how Ethereum got popular. And maybe I have an overly reductionist and simplistic answer. But because they had a working product and you could download it as a developer and they had pretty good documentation and a bunch of different developer environments and an active, vibrant community that was welcoming to new developers tinkering around with things. If you look at a lot of those early token sales on ETH, those were projects that previously were trying to build on on other cryptos. And ETH did a fantastic job of A, making it easy enough to develop on the platform with with some nice functionality, 
But more importantly is it was they, they were encouraging and welcoming people into it. Right. They, I think the most underrated thing about Ethereum is that the Ethereum homepage has a hello world example where it's create your own token. Maybe 2017 took that to the extreme. I think what's crazy about the the crypto space right now is it feels and I wasn't really cognizant in the, in the 90s dot com boom. I was pretty young. But my sense is from things that I've read and heard, there were a lot of companies that raised a bunch of money on future promises of shipping things. And we, we kind of saw how that happened, where as the kind of Web 2.0 era happened, it was people could actually hack together a kind of working prototype and then go raise money, put up big expectations. And then mobile even accelerated further where you could put together an app, get a bunch of users and then go raise money. And so my sense is that crypto is probably going through the same thing where 2017, we had all these really talented developers and cryptographers and, and distributed systems thinkers. And they said, hey, I can build a better ETH. I can do this with crypto. Give me a bunch of money. And it became like the goal was to raise a bunch of money rather than get working products out there. So I think that that is the big thing that's missing, less so maybe sales. But once you get to the working code standpoint, I, I think sales or marketing or, or kind of positioning for your product is, is pretty important. Well, you're, I mean, you're definitely not wrong about there being a, a product out because, I mean, they got to proof of concept, you know, from the white paper. They like had proof of concepts that they were releasing right away. But there was definitely a sales element to Ethereum in the early days of 2014 where, I mean, people were flying around. I thought it was almost crazy at the time because, you know, people were flying in from London or Switzerland to come to meetups that, you know, had 20 people in them, you know, like the transatlantic ticket um, just to like come talk to 20 people. And I was, as someone that's rather cheap, I was relatively skeptical of the value at the time, but I would say it probably worked. I mean, Vitalik to this day basically flies around everywhere talking to people about Ethereum. No, I think that's I think that's a great point. I, I think that that's that's great sales as it relates to a core blockchain. Did so I'm sort of curious based on, you know, it seems like you had some success selling Envoy and then getting a bank to take a, a chance on Coinbase. Granted you had some big name investors that obviously helped. That's crazy. I mean, how did you find the process of 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 selling? Was it did did you read any books or did you just work really hard and, and try to listen to people. It's interesting. Sales to me is you go in, unless you're an amazing natural at it, which I'm not, you kind of get beat up. You make a bunch of mistakes. And if you fix some of those mistakes, the next time you get beat up a little less. And at a certain point, you can start to anticipate the types of questions. You can get a quick read on the situation and steer the conversation or avoid things that your earlier self would have kind of hit that pitfall. And arguably, you could say that's kind of like anything. I think management is another example of that. But in, in sales, and I would say that the Envoy experience for me was really valuable because I, I had a lot of reps. I, I spent a lot of time trudging around Soma with my, my briefcase and an iPad and pitching people on, hey, you should use this instead of a, a piece of paper and pencil. Right. So not the hardest sales cycle. And it's a $75 a month, at least at the time product. Um, so the, the kind of decision point was not particularly tough to get past, but there's still you're an early stage startup data security. There, there's a whole laundry list of things you need to be able to get through. Right. 
and kind of working through that process, mixing that also with, and I, and I shouldn't rag on consulting too, too much, because I, I do think one thing that's interesting about consulting is you're 23, 24, and you're getting put in front of senior executives at major Fortune 500 companies. And they actually pretty much treat you with, with a decent amount of respect. And so you quickly learn how to interact in a professional business environment. So if I take both of those experiences and then apply them to pitching banks, you, you get comfortable around people wearing suits and, and you can kind of blend in with those folks in terms of if you put your own suit on and, and kind of know how to properly run a, a business meeting. And then I think that the general read of having been a salesperson you can kind of pick up on cues, a lot of them being nonverbal, that you can help steer your meeting. And look, you're going to have tons of bad meetings, but the mentality of, okay, well, what did I learn from this and, and can I improve for the next one is, I don't know, at least I had that and, and I feel like that sets you up well for, for kind of a long sales cycle. Did you ever have a moment when you were trudging around selling $75 a month sign-in software? that you were thinking like, what did I do? I should have gone to business school or kept being a consultant? Hard. I have a really bad memory, so I, I don't <laughs> know if I can put myself too many times back in, in that situation. I think the... No great story the, about like, you know, I nearly lost it or anything like that, though, it sounds like. I tend to be more future oriented. So I don't, I don't like, I tend not to look backwards. It would be more, is this really what I want to be doing rather than, oh, I wish I had gone to business school. So my mental state probably was more around, hmm, do I want to continue doing this or do I want to shift to something different? And I think reading the Bitcoin white paper and becoming obsessed with crypto, I think, was a was a nice catalyst for me to kind of realize that for me personally, working on something that is really intellectually stimulating is, is really important. And that's not to say that building a SaaS company, because I have nothing but positive things to say about Envoy and the product. But I, I think, like I said, the day-to-day -day of working at the heart of crypto, I think is really is really hard to beat. It sounds like that it was a key success factor for you, though. I mean, getting in all of those reps, like pitching people in person, and it sounds like you were probably basically doing a lot of cold calls, right? So that's like a fantastic business education right there that probably prepared you really well to go be successful in Europe. How much have you seen the Valley environment change even over the last like six months? Because... I can just tell you, I used to get people emailing me from the Valley like six months ago, advice, money, whatever. And now I am not really getting that as much. And yeah, I mean, I'm just seeing like VCs throw money at crazy things in my view. But it seems like there, even six months ago, there was, you know, a lot more skepticism than there is now. D do you feel that? I think the, the Valley can get hot and cold on things pretty quickly. So if I think back to 2014, if you had the word Bitcoin in your pitch for a period of time, you were instantly funded and you were going to change the world. Right. That didn't play out like I think people were expecting. And I think last year it was not at a fever pitch until about May when the ICOs really started to take off. I think I can remember one. I won't name the ICO because I feel like I would be picking on it, but the, the ICO that did a 30 plus million dollar raise in 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I, I think that about. was a, a signal to the, the wider VC community that something was happening here and you probably haven't been participating. And I think between kind of May and June and the end of last year, every metric that you could come up with as it relates to kind of VCs all of a sudden interested in the topic 
was exponential. Where we got to in January this year was there's probably going to be some regulatory crackdown on this stuff. Um, It's kind of interesting that the SEC came out with the Dow guidance last summer, and it didn't really stop. If anything, things accelerated through the end of the year. And I think it was started to get really clear, at least kind of through back channels in, in February, that this isn't okay, and there's going to be some some serious consequences for people who are totally flaunt, flaunting the rules. We'll see how that plays out. My my sense is what's happened in the Valley is you weeded out a bunch of folks who kind of were just anything that said ICO or crypto, they were, they were all over. Those folks are now not participating right now because it, it feels too risky. There are definitely, though, a group of now converted – as I'd call them, people who are seeding the next kind of stage of, of companies. And those companies aren't doing public sales, right? They're doing right. either actual equity rounds, which is the most safe, and then others are doing kind of tokens, but, but trying to be as far from the 2017 era ICO so as to avoid maybe some of the scrutiny. And my sense is we might be in a market that's it's kind of I hate to say up, down, or, or sideways, but but the idea is maybe a more neutral or, or reasonable environment until you hit another catalyst or, or some major breakthrough that, that kind of kicks us back into a, a new rapid appreciation cycle is, is maybe what I would call it. So I guess I talked a lot about work. I'm curious, what do you do for fun outside of Coinbase? I'm a recovering Boston sports fan. <laughs> I, I don't have a ton of time for sports. <laughs> I'm also, I went to Duke, so basically I'm a very hateable person as it relates to the sports world. <laughs> the, the Duke Patriots, and the, and the Duke Patriots. <laughs> I spend a lot of time with my wife. She's, she's amazing, and I, we, we go hiking quite a bit, skiing, like to cook. If, if left to my own devices and I'm by myself, I'm, I'm very content reading. I'm, I'm a pretty big introvert. And that's generally, you see my bursts of tweets tend to happen on Saturdays is when I if I can sneak out to a, a coffee shop and, and sit down, I'll just sit there and kind of let the the thoughts that have been building up through the week out. Other than that, I'm, I don't know. I, I think of myself as a pretty simple person. What are you? What's exciting to you right now in this space? I am really excited about people building on top of permissionless open blockchains. I, I think I try to remove myself from the religiosity of the Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus X cryptocurrency camp. And what I'm much more excited about are the kind of apps and interesting things people are doing with crypto. It's the reason I got obsessed with it to begin with is thinking through all the potential things you could do with Bitcoin. And I think CryptoKitties, as silly as they are, are a huge innovation and I'm really excited to see what creative entrepreneurs are going to do with digital collectibles. Zenga from the previous era of social gaming was any indication. You can actually build a decent-sized business selling digital goods. And I have to imagine digital goods that are provably rare and you as the consumer own rather than some proprietary digital asset that a, a company does. I think that's a that's a pretty 
interesting canvas for developers to play around with. And then I think just a lot of the financial primitive stuff that's happening within the Ethereum ecosystem, and, and not necessarily to say that it's only going to happen in Ethereum, but I think that's where the highest concentration of those folks are. I think it's just really exciting. I, it's really hard to predict all of the applications for the internet in 1994, right? And I hate using what year of the internet are we in crypto, because I think it, it's different and things happen in a shorter time frame. But we could also very much be in the 80s. Uh, of the internet for crypto. Yes, and- thank you. Somebody gave me a quiz recently that was like, what era are we in? And it like started in 1996. And I was like, no, we're in the 80s. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and it's like, we're in a combination of 80s, 90s, and, and maybe web 2.0. Yeah, right? no, I, and, I, and I agree so, with that. Yeah. And so I, I think overly simplistic comparisons are probably not helpful, but at the same time, it's interesting to think through the history of the internet and what use cases were successful early on and which ones ended up starting maybe smaller, but getting big over time. And, and then kind of maybe trying to extrapolate at least the kind of core lessons from that and then maybe apply it to some of the use cases we're seeing now. But the, the beauty of this stuff is also it's just it's it's global, right? There can be an innovation that happens in China tomorrow by some smart entrepreneurial team that anyone anywhere can pick up and, and apply in their country. And I think that that's just a such an exciting possibility that every day I, I kind of wake up and I'm like, did, did that thing happen? Did, did someone actually come up with something that is so powerful from a, whether it's a developer or consumer standpoint? And, and it probably won't just happen overnight because nothing like that does, but at least the, the first semblances of it. I mean, CryptoKitties is a great example of something that kind of started off in a hackathon and then blew up pretty quickly. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do find some interesting use case or there's some set of events that kicks off folks using an app that's built on top of Ethereum or another blockchain. Where should they get in touch with you? Follow you on Twitter? Follow me on Twitter. I'm, I'm, I'm back. So uh, <laughs> yeah, DWR on Twitter. I have a pirate avatar. I don't know why. I just do. Yeah, I was actually that was one of the questions I was going to ask you that I hadn't asked you, but now I have the answer. <laughs> I think I think there was an 18-year-old version of me that thought the Steve Jobs quote round it's more fun to be a pirate than be in the navy. I found that image online somewhere. I don't know if I remember where exactly, but I, I found it, put it as my avatar and it's kind of stuck ever since. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, seriously, I do appreciate it. As I said, like people like Coinbase get a lot of flack, but you've certainly been crucial in bringing people into the ecosystem. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the podcast. 